Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on a sunny day in a rather deserted city of Westminster as once again we ensure that we have a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. I'm Scott Challoner and I'm joined on today's programme by Rod Lloyd. Rod is the Managing Director of Low Cost Vans, one of the UK's leading providers of commercial vehicles. Rod, welcome to the programme and it's great to have you on the air with us today. Oh, thanks, Scott, and uh, thank you very much for inviting me to take part in the programme. Pleasure to be here. It's an absolute pleasure having you on the air with us. Now, um, the purpose of this podcast, as I say, is to really gather a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. And leadership is something that's really being put to the test at the moment, isn't it, with the current COVID-19 situation and business leaders having to navigate their firms through this crisis. Tell me, for somebody in your line of work, how has it been trying to navigate the last few weeks? Because I can imagine it's been quite a challenge. Oh, I think uh, challenging is uh, an understatement, yeah. Um, we saw it coming quite early, but it still had a, an extremely profound effect on our business. You know, we put our disaster recovery plan into operation really early in March, a couple of weeks before the lockdown. So we've had some people working from home at that time. Uh, and I'm really pleased that um, I had the vision to do that because it's allowed more of my staff to be able to work from home. You know, our working environment has changed dramatically, but we've had to adopt and and use all the tech that we possibly can um, to keep going forward and keep in touch with our clients. It's been uh, an extremely challenging time, yeah. And it's pushed leadership um, to the limits, hasn't it, uh, maintaining communication with um, employees because we've lost that sort of central human contact, haven't we? There's no sort of working environment anymore where we all get together. Everybody tends to be working remotely. So it's really changed the way that we've had to approach um, sort of operating a business from that point of view as well, hasn't it? Oh, without doubt. You know, we've tried to stick to um, our normal routine. So we have our management huddle at uh, 10 past nine every morning, but we do that through the medium of, uh, of Teams. So we have a video conference every morning, which takes normally 30 minutes. We talk through what's happening with the management group, how we're going to tackle the day, what's come up overnight, and um, we go forward from there. So we, I think, stick into routine and keeping people in touch, even, you know, unfortunately, I've had to feel no. Uh, some people, but we still have an all-users group, which we speak to everybody on throughout um, throughout the course of a week. And uh, we even have some Friday fun in the way of bingo or quizzes mm. and, and everything else to keep people involved. But it's certainly been uh, a time to, you know, stretch me and my management group, really. And, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, we are resilient, and I'm really grateful that we've been able to pick and and teach the group that we've got, you know, and I'm lucky I work uh, as part of a group of extremely smart, talented and hardworking people. And, you know, we're on this journey together, but we didn't expect to be on this road at this time, but we're still there. It's often said, isn't it, that times of adversity and crisis do bring out the best in people when people are thrust from their comfort zones and really have to get their hands dirty and muck in, as it were. And uh, like I say, I imagine it's been the case for yourselves as well. You're learning so much more about um, each other as a business team when you're having to deal with difficulties like this. Yeah, definitely. We've certainly grown closer as a management group, even though there's far more physical distance between us right now. And it's been really heartening for me to see that all these, the, the management group that I've got have all come together and we cover each other, talk to each other throughout the day. And in this 
extremely challenging working environment that we have. Um, it's, 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 you know, it's been really great for me to see that this extremely smart and talented, hardworking group of people um, that I've been able to pull together are still on the journey with me uh, for the long term. Exactly right. And um, what sort of qualities would you say are important when you're looking for members of your team? Um, whenever we have brought people on to the management group, it's always been about the, uh, um, the journey they've been on within our company, the morals, the work ethic, um, and the ability to take on board new things and learn from their mistakes as well. Um, you know, everyone makes mistakes and as long as we can learn from that, that's always been the biggest learning curve I can give to anyone. Whenever I've gone away in the past and left my management group to run the business, you know, I've always given them the instruction that, look, if you have to make a decision and it's an important decision that you would normally want me to make, I'm happy for you guys to make the decision as long as you have a process. When I come back, if when we go through it, as long as the process is right, I'll back the decision, regardless of whether I feel it is a right or wrong decision. Do you think it's really possible to actually develop into a good employee or even a good leader without making mistakes, as you say, trying a couple of things, getting things wrong, and then learning from them? Because no one leader is going to get everything right, are they? As human beings, we do have limitations. <laughs> Oh yeah, I've made loads of mistakes. You know, I probably made. You know, I, I think as a as a leader, I can only ever hope to get probably if I'm getting eighty percent of the decisions right, then I'm doing fantastically well. And that's really the, um, the the lesson that I've been able to try and teach to my team is: look, don't be afraid of making mistakes. You know, take a leap of faith. You know, and trust your instinct. You know, but never swim too far from the shore. And um, we've talked an awful lot about um, the way that you view leadership um, in that sense, uh, Rod. Um, what would you say have been some of the influences behind that style that you've taken on? The influences behind my style of leadership? Yes, that's absolutely right. Yeah. Um, I think it's partly to do with my upbringing. I think I was an, a leader from quite an early age. Um, my first job that I had, I was a manager within two years. And I've got to put a lot of that down to the upbringing that I had, and particularly my father, I suppose, uh, as far as business is concerned. So it's never been too, I've always liked taking responsibility and, you know, living or dying by my results, I suppose. So being able to pass that on to my team um, has been the one good thing that I've been able to do to get us all through this pandemic. And do you think, considering that you took on leadership from quite um, an early age, do you think that great leaders are born with certain abilities or is it something that you can learn as you develop? I think some leaders are born. Yeah, I do. And I think others have a calling which they find later in life to come to management and come into leadership. Um, for me, as I said, I, I think I was probably a leader at quite an early age. Um, and there are people that I have in my management group who have learned to become managers and I have mentored them into that as well. And um, I think it's, it's a bit of both, I suppose, Scott. 
Um, it's interesting how you talk about mentors there because um, I'll pick out a quote from Nelson Mandela here. He always said uh, to surround yourself with people who are better than you. And I think one of the best pieces of advice that you can give, especially to a younger leader who is, of course, aspiring um, in a particular role, it's to pick your mentors carefully, isn't it? It is. And uh, it's funny you should mention uh, Nelson Mandela, actually. There are probably only two men in my life that have moved me to tears. One was my father and the other one was Nelson Mandela. So he's certainly a man to be, um, to, uh, I've looked up to, yeah. And a bit more of an abstract one um, here, still on uh, Nelson Mandela. Um, what do you think he would say if he were to address um, the staff at um, low-cost vans and to help them direct them through this crisis? Uh, oh, gosh, what a question. Stay calm. Be focused. Trust the people around you. Trust your gut and have passion and empathy. What that? Mm. Those latter two um, qualities are hugely important for leaders because being a leader is essentially about taking people with you, isn't it? And without passion and without empathy, it's going to be very difficult to do that. Oh, I, you know, there's no way I could do this on my own. You know, we have somewhere near six and a half thousand customers in in the UK. We try and look after everybody. We try and um, give everyone the best advice that we possibly can. So you've got to have people who see the vision of the future and they're on the journey with you. Um, you know, I've never been arrogant enough to think that it's me or it's me on my own. It's us as a team and it's always been like that for me. And if you were to give some advice um, from your years of uh, business experience to that younger generation of aspiring leaders, what sort of advice would you give them? It's something that I do on a, a regular basis. I'm more than happy at any time to speak to some younger people and um, you know give them a, whatever whatever I've learned as advice. And I think um, it's always about look. You know, you need to look at the road you're on and plan ahead. Um, always remember that you, your plan will change. Uh, you should always trust your instincts, back yourself, but most importantly realize that you're going to make mistakes. But as long as you learn from those mistakes, you know, you're going to, you're going to, you're going to enjoy the moment and get on with life and reflect on those mistakes in the future and see that they were part of um, a huge learning curve. And if we do think about the uh, the future in the long term, Rod, before we do wrap things up on today's programme, um, do give me an idea of what you imagine the next 12 months will hold for yourself and for low-cost fans, and also an idea of what you hope to achieve in that time, particularly going beyond the COVID-19 pandemic as well as navigating the present situation. Okay. Uh, yeah, low-cost fans is a business that you know I've had um, developed from a standing start into a company that now you know, employs somewhere around 34, 35 people. And we are lucky because we've always embraced new technology and we work remotely anyway. So our customers uh, don't meet us when we supply vehicles to them. So we've always um, worked remotely from customers. We never see a customer or the vehicle when we deliver it all over the UK. So that's going to allow us to take um, a little bit more control going forward on supplying vehicles into the SME and major fleet market uh, for businesses around the UK. And I'm hoping that we can continue to develop the people 
develop the business and prosper um, in the next 12 months. It's, you know, the most important thing that I can see at the moment is getting through this pandemic and public health and the health and well-being of the people around us all is absolutely of the most paramount importance. We have to see that first. But for me, it's, um, I think the next 12 months will be hard as we look at this new normal, social distancing. And I think there's a lot of businesses that are going to need a lot of help to get through this. Um, but that's included. Um, we're just going to have to adopt to a new normal experience. I think you're absolutely right in saying that, Rod. Um, We are just about out of time on today's programme, but what I think would be really, really beneficial in future, especially for the listeners, is perhaps in the next few months, once we start to see that new normal developing, we can maybe have you back on the air with us and just discuss that and maybe catch up on how the business is getting on as well. But for now, I have to say it's been a thoroughly insightful and also a really enjoyable experience having you on today's programme, Rod. And thanks ever so much for taking the time to come on and speak with me today. Oh, well, thanks, Scott. It's been a pleasure to be here. I, the one thing I'd like to say is I'm more than happy to chat with anyone who, who listens to this and chat through any difficulties or business issues they're having. You know, for, for me in particular, it's just about survive, revive and thrive. And uh, we will all get through this, I hope. Exactly right. And I think sharing counsel at this point in time is of huge importance also. And also to those who are listening, do stay home and do stay safe because it really does make a difference in saving lives as well. Um, I was speaking to Rod Lloyd, the Managing Director of Low Cost Vans. Um, Coming up next on today's programme, I'll be handing over to Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with Lord Blunkett. Lord Blunkett is an active member of the House of Lords, a former Labour MP and Secretary of State and the Chairman of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. Despite being blind from birth, Lord Blunkett is one of the most prominent politicians of his generation, having held a number of senior positions in Tony Blair's cabinet and having served as the MP for Sheffield, Brightside and Hillsborough for 28 years. He was elevated to the House of Lords as Baron Blunkett at Brightside and Hillsborough in August 2015. I hope you enjoy listening just as much as Matthew enjoyed speaking with Lord Blunkett and that's coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, Well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, which uh, we must touch on. Um, What would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected Mm -hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the, the grant, 10000 or 25000 all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who, who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world and being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time 
and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative. They're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery. Whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and product productivity and, and the production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and Mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who Mm -hmm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a a good outcome from knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself. And there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's uh, severe illness. But all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen seen the same on the international scene for Mm. all kinds of reasons. Uh, But maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods. 
including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, um, the food chain and the like, uh, but also, I think, in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm. But actually, I think there is a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that, that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I, I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's uh, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent to the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right, and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear right. advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons, because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. 
those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy, I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Donald Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, yeah. it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months 
when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond, we did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would people criticize the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in you deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You you can you can sponsor reports. This is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Sh shut um, these kind of things you, you can look at, but you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. But very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm -hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems. If that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope and without uh, obviously we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without uh, creating even more anxiety we can think about those things for the future in a more rational way i think now aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy not just national economy but also the world economy um, now, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about 
proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges. And they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives, for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic, concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months, we, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002 when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm -hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect and what happens with one will then have a major impact on another and then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected so I very much if I were in government and I always think of things in that context what would I do if I were in government 
I would be on the side from the second week in May on the side of the Hawks in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back. Perhaps, you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year and the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are uh, the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government and the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent uh, professional lawyer who as Director of Public Prosecutions led the service well uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm-hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made Shadow Foreign Secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and um, the the disaffected uh, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition more importantly, will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, It was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty, and we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role, and that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them, above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. 
Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Secure is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning. Uh, what's your response uh, to that report, and what does Secure need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, uh, Mr. Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of us, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Secure needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Secure Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed as it did in the 1980s and early 90s to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Secure has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up 
in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from mm-hmm. each other, that is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Blanket. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.